Let's pray before we start here. Father, I, I just, oh, we just thank you for this day and for the event that we celebrate. Lord, I pray you would speak through me today. That, as your psalm says, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing unto you. O oh God, my rock and my redeemer. So I give you praise, Lord, and thanks, and we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as some of you, or I guess probably most of you know, I had, um, I was not always a pastor. I had a job in the business world, actually several, before uh, responding to the call of God. And one of the places that I worked was Markel Corporation, which is a company that's based here in Richmond. And I was their director of internal audit for uh, when I first began. And so one of the jobs or one of the responsibilities that I had in that role was to interview various people around the company, uh, really just to talk to them about their job, to look for places where maybe controls were weak or improvements could be made, efficiencies could be gained, those kinds of things. So. As it was kind of a fun job because I really got to meet a lot of various people throughout the company. And one of the more memorable individuals that I interviewed was a man that I will just call by his first name in case anyone would ever run across him. His name was Dick. And he worked up in Evanston, Illinois, which was where one of Markel's subsidiaries was located. It's called Shan Morahan. And what I didn't realize when I first interviewed Dick... Um, was that Dick was an extraordinarily gifted person. But I didn't know that when I first started talking to him. So I set up an interview to, to talk with him. And I didn't really know exactly what he did, so this was going to be my opportunity to you know, really kind of find out what his role with the company was and so forth. And so met with him. And by the time the interview was concluded, I felt like I knew even less than when I had started. And I felt really stupid. <laughs> it was like Dick was on this level of intelligence that was so much greater than mine, and I just couldn't comprehend his brilliance, right? And so, you know, you just you kind of feel like, ugh. Well, <clears throat> I started to sort of share that, you know, this story with people around the company, and um, as I shared and as I heard from others, I started to feel quite a bit better because it was at that point that I learned what Dick's special gift was. Because I found out that almost everybody had issues trying to figure out what Dick was saying. And it was at that moment that I realized that Dick's special gift was that he was able to make simple things complicated. Now, <clears throat> I was even more relieved about this when um, I found out that the problem of trying to understand what Dick was saying some of the times went all the way to the very highest level of the company. I was told about one occasion when none other than Tony Markell, who was president of the company, was having a meeting with Dick and some others, at, at this company, and one of the others was the person who was telling me the story, so they were a first, they witnessed this firsthand. 
And so as the meeting rolled on, you know, Dick began to speak at some point, and eventually he started to talk about corridors of influence or something like this. And at this point, Tony, who was not known for his subtlety, slapped his big hand on the table and in this booming bass voice says, Dick, a corridor is a darn hallway. What the heck are you talking about? <laughs> and that is the church-approved version of what Tony said. <laughs> now, I'm pretty confident that <laughs> we all either know people like that or we have encountered situations where something very simple is presented in a way that makes it just way more complicated than it ought to be. You know, I, I'm convinced, at least, that there are uh, certain companies go out of their way to find people like Dick and have them write the instructions for how to assemble their products. <laughs> and I think... You know, if you're interviewing for one of those jobs, not only is it important to have Dick's special gift, but if English isn't your first language, that's an added plus. <laughs> now, all kidding aside, I also believe that making something simple complicated has been an unfortunate characteristic of Christians. And one of the things that we've shown a tendency to overcomplicate is this thing called the Christian life. Now, the gospel is actually very simple. And I'm going to share it with you now in just four steps. So here's, if you've never heard this before, this, this might be interesting for you. But this is what the gospel is. Step one, God has a plan for you. God loves you so much. It's just like what, what Andre said and what Laney said. John 3.16, which is an often quoted verse, says, God so loved, so loved, so loved what? The world. So if you consider yourself part of the world, then God loves you. And so he so loves you that he wants you to experience this wonderful peace in your life. And it's something that he offers. But you, we, have a problem. And the problem is that we're separated from God. And this was through no direct fault of your own. You were born that way. It's a result of something that happened a long time ago where uh, there was a rebellion that occurred. And by nature now, we're all separated from him. The Bible very clearly says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because God is holy and we're not, then there's this problem of us trying to measure up to the perfect standard that God has. Step three, God solved the problem for us. This is exactly what we're celebrating today, was God's solution to the problem. It was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so God's love bridged this gap 
that separated us from him. And so when Jesus died and then was later resurrected, he paid the penalty that we all were, would have to pay eventually um, for that. Again, the Bible says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And then finally, step four, you respond by accepting the solution that was put forth. All that's required of us is our response. We just receive Jesus. And once you do that, you cross that bridge, you can become part of God's family, you become a child of God, like we just were talking about. Again, the Bible says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Simple, right? Now, you could get into this theologically, and there's a lot there. But at its core, at its base level, that's the gospel. Now, well, what about this last step, entering into a relationship? Is that, isn't that really complicated? No. Four steps. Step one, you just have to admit that you're a sinner. Now, that's a hard step for some. Ego kind of gets in the way. But if we will realize that and just make that admission, then that's the first step in, in, in being saved. And then it's a matter of just asking for forgiveness and being willing to turn away from the sin that we're all engaged in. You then believe that Jesus died for you on the cross. That's all you have to do is believe that. And then four, you just receive Jesus. Romans 10, 13 says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Four steps. Gospel, four steps. Salvation, four steps. Now, I would be remiss that if I didn't offer this, that if you came here today to celebrate this amazing event that happened so long ago, but you don't, you've heard this and you don't really have that relationship, but you now desire one, then it's going to be my honor to lead you in a very simple prayer. Now, we're not going to say it out loud. I will say it. If, you, if it's your desire to do this, I'm going to have everyone close their eyes and you're just going to say it silently. And this is how you can receive Jesus. And so you would pray, Dear Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Guide my life and help me to do your will. In your name I pray. Amen. Now, I don't want to see hands, but if you prayed that prayer today, I would love if you would at least tell me after the service. So, the gospel message is simple. Entering into the Christian life is simple. Living the Christian life? Not so simple. At least if you judge the hundreds of years of people who've been trying to do just that. 
Now, I honestly think it's because we don't really have a proper understanding of God's grace. See, we have to understand that the Christian life is totally grace. If we believe that God has only met 50% of the requirements by grace, then we naturally, automatically think, well, we've got to make up the other 50%. After all, 100% of the requirements have to be met, right? So if God's only met part of the requirement, then it's going to be up to us to do the rest. And almost every one of us, at one time or another, have been subtly lured into this trap. God saved me, he forgave my sins, and now I have to do the rest. John Wesley, who founded the Methodist Church, once said, earnestly pursue perfection. My response, good luck with that. (laughs) I've earnestly pursued, haven't you? I knew the forgiveness of my sins was by grace, but that, you know, God had this demand, be ye perfect, be ye holy. And though forgiveness was by grace, I was just, I was locked into this doing, this other part, doing it by works. I had to work to be holy. Even if God's part was 80%, that still left 20% that I had to do. But that's not the truth. The truth is it's all by grace, 100%. Not only are we justified and made right with God by grace, but we're sanctified, which is our continuing maturity. And that occurs by grace too. God does it all. And the cool thing is, and this is, you know, some people will say, well, we have the New Testament. Why do we need the Old? It's just, I just get confused when I read it. Well, because so much of the Old Testament points to the New Testament. And here's a great example. Hundreds of years before Jesus came, God said he was going to do this. And he said it through one of his prophets, the prophet Ezekiel. And he explained this new covenant to the, the Jews. That's not Ezekiel. That is. And so in the book of Ezekiel is written this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Who is the only one who can perform this heart transplant? God. Notice all of the I wills that are in this passage. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. See, on the outside, it's going to look like you. That's the hard part. But when this happens, nothing is going to have its point of origin with you. The point of origin is God's I will in you. There was another one of God's prophets that said something very similar to this. I'll bet you can guess who it was. It was Jeremiah. Yes, sir. 
And he was the first to sort of record this covenant of I wills because in Jeremiah 31, 31, he says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Aren't the I wills of Ezekiel and Jeremiah tremendous? God says, I will do it. And we're the benefactors of those I wills. All of those I wills are worked into us and become the reality of our lives. And as that happens, then we begin to walk at them. And that's the desire of our hearts, right? To walk in the way of the Lord. But as long as these things are just concepts to us, the truths that maybe seem kind of separate from us, then we're going to still try to make them happen. Now, we're, we're in a way kind of programmed to do that. But because we don't really know the inner life of God, we're also programmed to fail at it. We do have a new heart, and we want so desperately to do what God wants us to do, but by ourselves, we don't have the power to bring to pass what only God can do. There isn't any way that we can make the Christian life succeed on any other basis than faith in God's I wills. He will do it. That's the only way it works. There isn't any other way that we can make life succeed on any other basis. But it takes time for God to work these I wills into us. And to sort of take over or supplant all of those I wills that we have. Now, part of what God said he would do uh, in Ezekiel is already completed. He's given us a new heart. He's put a new spirit within us. He's removed the old heart and given us a new one in which he has also placed his spirit. That work is already finished and can't be touched. God can't do any more for us in the spirit realm than join his spirit and our spirit. And there be united with us in oneness. 1 Corinthians 6.17 puts this about as clearly as it could be put. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now the other part of God's work is ongoing where it says, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. That work of his is going to proceed in our soul and our body. If you remember, if you were here last week, we talked about the, the difference between body, soul, and spirit. And the idea that our spirit sort of exists ab, you know, above the line in the eternal realm, and our body and soul exist in this earthly realm. 
But if we don't see this eternal truth, then we're going to try to fix it for God. We'll get a hold of a new passage of scripture or a new book or a new concept, and we'll say, all right, that's what I want to look like. And then we're going to try to make it happen. Some people, and I may be somewhat guilty of this, will buy just about every how-to book ever written. Problem is, we never bother to ask the authors if they can actually do what it is they've written about. But we pretty quickly discover that we can't. God's the only one who can live the Christian life. So, if that's the case, then what role does the human being play in all of this? Well, it's actually pretty simple. Be available. The only thing you can do is to be available and willing to cooperate with the person in you that can cause it to happen. God doesn't cause anything to happen internally to us that we don't want to happen. God never stomps on your will. He loves it. He caresses it. He enfolds it. He draws it to himself, but he never overrides it. Now, it's kind of a terrible blow to our egos when we see that the only part that we have to play in God's grand plan is just to be available. You know, that's kind of like, really? I don't get to do anything? I've got all this education, all this training. I've read all these books. No, just be available. God does everything. Our part is to be willing. If you're willing to cooperate, then his response to you is, I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And that's the point that it comes back to you. Not as the point of origin, because it doesn't originate with you, but you are now the outward expressor of his life in you. It's interesting and kind of frustrating at times, but sometimes God will use the most disappointing chapter in your Christian life to begin to show you this. The point at which you're just about ready to say, I'm done. I'm just, this is too hard. I can't do this. I'm just going to, you know, Christianity, I've, but the problem is, we have the same problem once we have gotten into this that the apostles did. If you recall in Scripture, the point at which I'm fairly, don't quote me on this, but Jesus has just finished teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And people are sort of disgusted by that because they don't understand what he's talking about. And they all leave. They're all walking away. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, aren't you going to leave too? And what, are, what does the disciples say? Lord, where else would we go? And that's the, that's the thing I think we have once we find Jesus. We have nowhere else to go. 
It may get hard. It may get frustrating. But where else would we go? And so these difficult episodes become this necessary prerequisite to a greater blessing. The Holy Spirit will tell you in those times, in, those, in the depths of those problems, look, you're trying to live a life that you were never intended to live. But I can live the life in you, as you. That you're now trying to live on your own. That's good news, isn't it? That there is someone who can live this life? Jesus can live the life that is perfectly acceptable to the Father. And our primary role is to be available and willing for him to do it. He's always willing. If you are willing, then that's the secret. He will live the life. Now, you might be hearing this and you're going, well, this sounds really too good to be true. I mean... Well, if God does it, and if he's living the life through me, then what about those commands in the New Testament? I mean, we may have died to the Old Testament law, but aren't we supposed to try and keep God's commandments? Well, I would answer you this way. In 1 Corinthians 3.1, Paul refers to the believers in Corinth. These were believers as worldly and unspiritual. Now, the worldly and unspiritual believer is still indwelt by Jesus. They just don't really know it yet. Or if they do know it, they don't know how to live out of it. So they're living out of their soul. We talked about this last week. And what does the soul do? It swings from feeling pretty good about something to then feeling bad about this. And it goes back and forth as we have these thoughts we think good things, and then something bad happens, and we're back up on the bad side, and this goes on all day long. And so we're trying, if we don't understand this, that's where we're trying to live from. We think that life begins with us. And so Paul refers to them as babes, not that kind of babe. Babies. He, he writes to the babes of Christ in Corinth. And I don't, I'm not talking about um, chronological time in this sense. This really refers to spiritual maturity. Okay? You, can, you can be saved for 50 years and still be a babe in Christ. And so to these babes, Paul says, I gave you milk to drink not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. And so after he gave them this good news that Christ died for them, what we talked about earlier, he says, I fed you with milk. Well, what was the milk? I believe the milk was the do's and don'ts that it was necessary to give them. You see, Paul had a whole list of questions posed to him. When, when people asked specific questions concerning some real-life situation, he gave them specific answers. Why? Well, because the people didn't know yet how to operate out of their true identity. 
how to operate out of that union with Christ. And so they needed some guidance on how to, how to do these things. So the Corinthians had questions about marriage. Well, Paul responds. They had a problem with disputes and people going to court, and so Paul gives them an answer. In uh, Thessalonica, they must have asked, we've got all these guys that aren't doing anything. You told us Jesus was coming, and they just quit working. Well, Paul gave them some very practical advice. He says, well, if they don't work, they don't eat. See, those are all immediate situations. These folks didn't have a Bible. The only thing they knew, they knew to do, if they had questions like this, was to ask someone who had passed through and had taught them about Jesus. It might have been Paul, it might have been Apollos, it might have been one of any number of people. But when they had the question, they didn't know where else to go, so they would say, well, okay, well, what about this? And Paul would send back his response. He fed them milk. But once somebody begins to live from the reality of Christ in them, which is the solid food of the gospel, then they get weaned off the milk. They need those do's and don'ts less and less. They've learned to allow Christ to live his life through them. And the truth is, is this. The Christ that is in us doesn't steal. He isn't lazy. And he doesn't do all of those other things that Paul said not to do. The Christ in us doesn't need the do's and don'ts. He wrote them. He lives them naturally through us as we learn to allow him, to let him do that. And so knowing Christ in us, knowing that the gospel is 100% grace and that God does it all, frees us from all of these various labors that have bogged us all down for so many years. We thought all these labors were our part. This is what we're supposed to do. But we were wrong. We can quit trying to be good. Because when we do that, we just end up in despair. Because we never can accomplish that. And so, if you can get a hold of this, it finally frees you from this facade of pretending that we can somehow pull it off. We can stop being religious. Uh-oh, did he just really say that? Well, it may come as a shock to some of you, but Jesus wasn't religious. He experienced life from the Father. It was the religious people that wanted to kill him and did. And the thing is, we have as much religion today as they did back in their day. And if we don't have a complete understanding of the grace of God, then we're going to revert right back to religion for the answer. We'll use religious activity to say something about us, to make ourselves acceptable to God and to others. 
But when we finally see that Christ is fully formed in us, we don't have to be religious. Now, if God places you in a certain religious system, well, that's okay. But that doesn't mean you have to be religious. God has freed us from that. And so, if God does it all, then what role do we have to play? And as I said earlier, our part is to be willing to be available. Our part is not to do it. And our willingness gets expressed as faith or trust. Life for the believer operates by faith, not by self-effort. In his letter that he wrote to the Christians in Rome, Paul used another word for this process. He called it reckoning. Now, reckon is actually a banking or a financial word. It means that, in a financial sense, that you can count on there being money in the bank when you go shopping. So you can pull out your debit card or you can write a check because you know that there is money in the bank. Reckoning doesn't put money in the bank. But reckoning is counting on the fact that there already is money in the bank and you're free to go buy things. And so after he explained that we have died and been raised with Christ, Paul said, even so, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You're dead to sin. You're alive to God. Reckoning doesn't make that so. It is already so. But what reckoning does is it allows you to live out of the fact that it is so. God says you are a brand new creature. He says the old one died. You may not look dead, you don't feel dead, and you certainly don't always act dead. But are you going to agree with God or are you going to debate him? You may choose to debate him, but I will guarantee you, you will lose. It's just not worth it. So in faith, you agree with God. You go, well, I read it in your word, and it says right there that the old me is dead, and I, even though that sounds too good to be true, and I certainly don't feel like the old me is dead, I'm going to believe that that's the case. I reckon that to be true. Humanity was created in the beginning with the capacity to receive from the tree of life, which is Jesus, and then to go out and be an expresser of that life. That was what God intended to happen all along. But God purposely created us with the possibility of choice. And we always reap the results of our choices. We never escape that. We didn't then and we can't now. And so because 
And this gets this is hard for some people to understand. But because God loves you so much, he lets you choose. He doesn't force himself on anybody. He basically says to you, if you want to go the way of the world, then go. If that's where your love and your affection is, then you go. But you will reap what you have chosen. Does that mean that all is not of grace? No. No. God still does do it all. Only he can live the life. And only he can work in us, enabling us to be willing to cooperate with him. But he has left us a role, and that role is availability. We must make ourselves available to the Lord to live his life through us. I think the perfect example of this was the response that Mary had to the angel Gabriel. Here's this teenage girl. It's a visit from an angel and is told that she's going to become pregnant supernaturally. What does she say? Behold the, bond, behold the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. That's availability. Mary was willing. God was the one who did it. So here's what I'd like to leave you to think about. Maybe over the next week or next period of time. Because I truly believe it's the secret that makes the Christian life just as simple as the gospel and just as simple as salvation. My availability, his ability. And I think in your everyday life it'll play out something like this. Lord, you want to love this person through me but I'm not feeling any love for them right now. So you do the loving through me. I will make myself available for you to do that. Lord, I'm feeling really bitter against this person. But I'm going to choose right now to allow you to be forgiving through me. Lord, I do not feel like serving this person. But I know that you do. And so you go the second mile through me. You see, apart from a relationship with Jesus, humanity is not going to do that. But it is the nature of the one who is in you to do that. And so you can say to him, you do it. I will make myself available for you to do it. You just take over. In the unseen and eternal realm of God, 
There's a lot of things that don't seem to be finished, but actually already are. Things that don't seem to be complete, but already are. Someone who doesn't yet appear to be mature or full-grown already is. And until we get a revelation knowledge of that, we're going to keep trying to accomplish all of those things on our own. Our point of reference is still going to be ourselves. And if that's the case, then it's going to make the Christian life very complicated. We're going to keep struggling in that complexity until we get a complete picture of the grace of God. Then we will see that it's already done. Then we will see that he does it. Then we will see that he does it all. Then we will see that the Christian life really can be that simple.